Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery, and Rich Lenkov of Downey & Lenkov. If you caught NBC's miniseries, The Thing About Pam, back in February, you might be interested in the new book, Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. Joel Schwartz is one of the authors. He joins us today, a partner of Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry. Joel, thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate you guys having me. It's good to be here. So, Joel, you're a defense attorney. You wrote the book Bone Deep, which is about the murder of Betsy Faria, for which a woman named Pamela Hupp is currently awaiting trial. Hupp is already serving a life sentence for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger. You represented Betsy Faria's husband, Russ, in the original murder trial in 2013. Um, he was convicted of the murder, and that verdict was eventually overturned with a new trial ordered, which went forward in 2015, and he was ultimately acquitted. There is a lot to unpack here. We could spend hours talking about it, but tell us more on why you decided to write your book. It's just a story that was begging to be told. Given the ineptitude of the investigation, the corruption within the system between the prosecutor, the judge, and their offices, it's simply a cautionary tale that, frankly, not only every lawyer, but the public as well should understand and read as to the pitfalls of what can happen in such a serious, serious charge when there was somebody else who was patently, blatantly obvious a suspect that should have been investigated. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. You know, uh, I love these kind of stories, as does the general public, you know, obviously, given the success of the film and the book. Um, you know, it seemed like Russ Faria had several alibis and, you know, very little evidence linking him to the murder, but he was convicted. What what happened? I can't answer that to this day. <laughs> None of the jurors have contacted me. He had four solid alibi witnesses, including his cell phone. He was on three videos and cited by another independent witnesses who confirmed his whereabouts along with receipts that were found crumpled up in his car. He was wearing the same clothing that he was arrested in, which is significant because his wife was brutally stabbed 56 times and there wasn't a speck of blood on him. It defies logic and just blows the mind as to what the determination was made that went into deciding to charge him in the first place, much less convicting him of his crime. Um, the legal rulings kept out any mention of Pam Hupp, who I believed at the time was the ultimate perpetrator of the crime. She was the last one with her. She lied about when she was with her, why she was with her, and she inherited the proceeds of Betsy Faria's life insurance policy, which suspiciously had been assigned to her four days prior. So given just the surface layer of those facts, it defies logic and defies any explanation as to why a jury chose to convict them. So, Joel, Pam Hupp's story has obviously gotten a lot of attention. Um, the, the, the murder was featured on NBC's Dateline. There was a podcast back in 2019 and most recently the series The Thing About Pam. 
you know, she seems to be a pretty despicable character, knowing nothing about her, but just doing our homework for this interview and seeing like how she testified in court. And just, she just seems to be a pretty unlikable character. Um, and, you know, what's interesting and fascinating is the fact that, you know, she's been linked with a number of crimes, including Pumpenberger's murder, Betsy's murder, as well as potentially her own mother's death. What makes her story so unique when it's against the backdrop of thousands of murders that happen every year? Her story shouldn't be unique. Had she been investigated and arrested originally for that first crime, and that's assuming that there were no suspicious deaths before this, which there's been some rumor and innuendo regarding her previous actions before the Bessie Faria murder. What made it so compelling is the bungled investigation and allowing her to be part of it, which then enabled her to arguably commit the murder of her mother. And then after Russ was acquitted, there should have been an immediate investigation. And I believe what was starting that I had initiated which drove her into a desperate mode and I think caused her to kill Louis Gumpenberger. And what was remarkable about, about that is she was attempting to frame my client Russ Faria once again, simply by leaving some notes on him and alleging a kidnapping of her in retaliation for Betsy's murder. Well, Hupp is facing a um, death penalty or facing the death penalty for the murder of Betsy Faria. Um, earlier this month, she waived her right to a preliminary hearing which is a little bit unexpected for someone facing the death penalty. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's unheard of. I don't know why anyone would waive any rights when they're facing the death penalty. But as I have said many times in the past, nothing regarding Pam Hub amazes me anymore. She is a character unlike anybody else. And the fact that she's been able to get along, to get away with these things, at least up to a couple of years ago with the Lewis Gumpenberger murder, defies, a, defies logic. Last question here uh, on legal face-off, Joel. What do you think of the actors who depicted the uh, the characters in the film? Do you think they were accurate portrayals? How'd they do? They were wonderful. Uh, Renee Zellweger was incredible as Pam Hupp, and I can't believe she didn't get an Emmy nomination. Um, Judy Greer was spot on as the prosecutor, Leah Askey, and... Uh, I can't say enough about Josh Dumont portraying me. He's since become a friend of mine, and uh, it was an honor to have him playing me. Did you have a cameo appearance? Well, that was a fun. <laughs> I, I did have a cameo appearance. It was uh, they they took my hair and straightened it, and it was interesting in that the scene where that was I was my cameo was I played a bartender, at which the prosecutor spent the entire afternoon cutting down me. As not as my character, but cutting down Joel Schwartz. So it was a fun afternoon, and I spent it that day with Judy Greer. Got to know her. It's, boy, what a great, fun person she is! Don't be afraid to share those hair straightening tips. It took about an hour to do. Believe me, it wasn't so easy for them. I didn't do it. <laughs> Again, that's Joel Schwartz. Check out his new book, co-authoring "Bone Deep: Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case." He's of Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry. You can find out more about that firm at rsflawfirm.com. Joel, thank you so much for the insight today. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate you having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. 
Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, two more accusers have come forward after Adam Levine's social media sexting scandal. With that, we bring in Morgan Stogstill, partner of Beerman Law, and also co-host of the podcast, How Not to Suck at Divorce. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Morgan, so it's now five women in total have accused the Maroon 5 frontman, Adam Levine, of sending them inappropriate messages. Uh, this is after one of them, a model, uh, an Instagram model, Summer Stroh, claimed that she had a, a year-long affair with Adam Levine, who was married to a former Victoria's Secret model. Uh, Adam Levine has responded that the allegations were incorrect. He said he crossed the line, but that some of the allegations made were incorrect. So you deal with things like this every day in your practice as a matrimonial attorney. How do courts look at emotional affairs if this is all that was uh, versus actual physical affairs? That's a great question. So I practice only in Illinois, so I can comment on Illinois courts. Um, but Illinois is a no-fault state, so they don't focus on anything related to emotional um, cheating or infidelity. They do focus on infidelity only in certain respects, which would be if there's money involved or that infidelity is taking time away from um, the children. So, Morgan, in this case, in this scandal, there's texts involved, among other things. How can texts in general be recovered and used as evidence in divorce cases? Yeah, that also is a great question because we use those all the time. Because if one of the spouses is on one side of the text message, it's pretty easy to use those text messages and evidence. And then at that point, it would become a credibility issue of what they were talking about. But, you know, I always say when there's smoke, there's fire. So those messages may lead to more evidence. So Morgan, uh, to that point, let's dive into that a little deeper, because I think there's some misconceptions out there about whether... You can use things like text messages, Snapchats. Snapchats are different than, you know, texts and other social media interactions. Um, ultimately, it seems like there's really nothing that can't be discovered by an aggressive attorney. So talk to us a little bit about some of the tools that you use in these proceedings and how they can really be very compelling evidence uh, in, in litigation. 
Yeah. So what we can do is the first and best way to get it is somebody takes a snap of it. Um, They've have it on their phone and then it's, you know, in Mr. Levine's case, it's public record because now it's all over the news. Another way to use it is, you know, it's difficult if the, I would always say, make sure your profiles are private because it's really difficult to get that information if somebody is private Um, and subpoenaing for lack of a better term, Instagram or Facebook is really difficult. So you may need an IP expert that can trace the IP addresses, but the best way to get it if somebody um, is onto it is one side has disclosed it in some kind of a snap or you know taking it and keeping it on their phone. Morgan, I'm really interested in what you said earlier about credibility because you know Tina and I are lawyers. We deal with you know credibility all the time, uh, either in pursuing. Uh, litigation for our clients or defending against litigation. Credibility, no matter whether you do matrimonial law, family law, like you, like you or, or, or the work that Tina and I do, that's always a key component for any trier effect. So you mentioned in this case, um, you know, Adam Levine should be very careful in how he's responding to these allegations because ultimately, as we all tell our clients, think of how this is going to look to a judge or a jury. How do you think, understanding that you're not representing any of the parties, but how do you think sort of the public relations piece of this has gone for Adam Levine in the last couple of weeks? Well, I'm actually kind of shocked that it's been so quiet, um, given that there's five accusers. And it's really kind of interesting to see that they're, are, they're promoting pictures of him and his wife, his supermodel wife, who's also pregnant all over that they are one happy couple. Um, You know, I'd be shocked if that's truly the case, but they're doing a good job putting those out there for the public to not, you know, glom on. But I'm kind of impressed that given the five women that have come forward, there's not more information that is also coming forward. So Morgan, do you think that this is going to end up in a divorce given what we know right now? You know, I kind of I, I was kind of thinking about this overall, thinking maybe you would ask me that. Um, you know, first of all, I will say that it's tough out there. We've got a supermodel who, you know, has this happening to her. So it's it's tough out there overall. If I had to put my odds on it, probably they will stay together for a period of time. But, you know, once this trust factor is gone, it does take a little bit of time um, for it to unravel. And I would not be shocked if at some point in the future it unraveled. Morgan, what, what are some, I mean, it's always challenging, obviously, representing clients and what you do. There's lots of emotion involved. You know, anytime that people are separating, divorcing, there might be children involved. There's always, you know, the additional layer of emotion involved, which makes things difficult. How much more difficult does it make it when you've got a celebrity as a client, right? And you've got to deal with, you know, everything involved there with the public wanting to know and everyone's private business being flashed everywhere on the internet. That's got to add a different layer of obstacles to doing what you do. Oh, yes. And I can tell you from experience representing celebrities that there are many layers that come with it. So, you know, it's not just how is the divorce going to play out or what's going to happen to the children or my finances. It's how does the public view me? What kind of information are we going to put out and how can we get the other side to agree to, you know, maybe confidentiality provisions or maybe not to disclose certain things? And how do we keep this as quiet as possible? Don't forget all the celebrities, usually when they're going through this, they have lots of handlers. So as an attorney, you're dealing not only with them, but their entire team for every decision or most of the decisions we're making. 
So well, the last question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I think you and I are about to say the same thing. So last question on legal face off, Morgan, you have a wonderful podcast called how not to suck at divorce. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about it? Thank you. Yeah, yes. Tell everyone how not to suck at divorce. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So we started this podcast about a year and a half ago. I started it with a woman who was pretty open about her divorce, which I find most of my clients don't want to talk openly about their divorce. And I thought, hey, she's onto something. Maybe we could do something together that could help people out there get the knowledge they want confidentially without putting it out there. Shockingly, I didn't realize how much... Um, People needed it because our podcast is currently rated, you know, number two or number three in the world for divorce on Apple. So we have listeners in every state and probably about 15 countries around the world currently. We have one listener in Honduras currently. So, you know, shout out to that person. But we've enjoyed it and hopefully we're helping people. And it's just kind of taken off. I got to ask you one follow up. What is the one sure sign that you should get a divorce? I know I was looking at some of your podcasts and, and interesting subjects, but you know, I know that you have the do's and do- don'ts of divorce. I mean, I'm sure okay. you deal with you know clients every day, and they're wondering, should I do it? Should I not do it? What's the one sure sign that time to time to proceed? This is what I say, and it's not. It's hard to you know kind of make that call, but if your gut is telling you something isn't right, or you're going home every night and it doesn't feel like a sanctuary, it doesn't feel like the place you unwind. It kind of feels like the walls are caving in. Then you kind of have to think about: Do I need to stay in this relationship? Because I always say, trust your gut. It's there for a reason. Again, that's Morgan Stogsdill. Her podcast, "How Not to Suck at Divorce," also a partner of Beerman Law. Find out more about her firm at BeermanLaw.com. Morgan, thank you so much for the insight. Thank you, guys. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, Northeastern professor Daniel Medwed tackles the challenge of not guilty people continuing their life in prison in his most recent book, Barred, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. We have the professor with us right now. Professor Daniel Medwet, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Professor, your book makes a compelling argument that for a variety of reasons, exonerations are almost impossible. What are some of the reasons uh, that you have found for that conclusion? Well, I think there's a disconnect, Rich, between what we think about when we think about what happens after a trial and what actually happens. So I think we've all heard that people get out on technicalities, that appeals are endless. But really, nothing could be further from the truth. You only have a right to appeal your conviction once and once only. It's called the direct appeal. It's not enshrined in the Constitution. It's just a function of state statutes. And that direct appeal is limited in terms of the issues you can raise. You can't bring any newly discovered anything uh, evidence, anything that was off the record that wasn't presented at trial. And even then, you typically can only raise issues that were adequately preserved for review, where there was an objection and a discussion down below. So appeals aren't a great vehicle for freeing innocent folks. There are a number of other remedies, collateral remedies that are a little bit better. But again, they are replete with procedural obstacles, things like statutes of limitations, um, restrictions on what counts as new evidence, and so on. So contrary to popular uh, opinion, appeals aren't endless, and they're not easy. 
So, Professor, one unfortunate example in Bard is the story of Bobby Fennell, who spent 16 years behind bars for a murder he didn't commit. Can you tell us his story? Sure. Thank you, Tina. It's a really alarming story. So in 1985, a man was shot and killed outside a house where drugs were sold. And two guys were charged with the crime, Bobby Fennell and Joe Perry. They were both basically enforcers for the drug operation. So they were natural suspects. And there was only one eyewitness, a drug user who frequented the house, who said that these two guys did it, that Joe and Bobby did it. Case goes to trial. It's a joint trial. They're tried together and they're both convicted solely on the testimony of this one guy. Again, a drug user, and his statements didn't match up during trial. There were lots of inconsistencies and discrepancies based on his trial statements and his pretrial statements. So they get this. This is really amazing. After the conviction, Joe comes forward, one of the co-defendants, and he tells his lawyer, you know what? I acted alone. I did this by myself. I didn't want to come clean before because I thought we both would get acquitted because there was such flimsy evidence against us. But now that we both went down, I have to do the right thing for my friend Bobby. Bobby wasn't even there. And then that lawyer told Bobby's lawyer, and they filed a motion with the judge to have a new trial. And the judge had a hearing. And at this hearing, Joe testified under oath that he had done this alone. And Bobby's lawyer found all of these other witnesses, came out of the woodwork to say Bobby wasn't even there. But the judge denied it, didn't even issue an opinion. And the case lay dormant for 15 years until we got a hold of it. One of these lawyers approached us when I was running a small innocence project at Brooklyn Law School. But we couldn't do anything, Tina Rich. We couldn't do anything because there was nothing new. We, we understood that Joe had acted alone, but all this evidence was vetted back in the 1980s. And so the only thing we could do for Bobby Fennell is try to get him out on parole which we managed to do, but he was never exonerated. His name was never cleared, even though all this evidence suggested he was innocent. Why is it, I mean, at the risk of asking an obvious question, Professor, why is it important to the process of exoneration to uncover new evidence? Why, how, how do the courts look at, and how do they define new evidence? Great point. So I, I think it's important because there is this idea that trials are the main event and appeals and post-conviction remedies are sort of the undercard. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, exalted this concept in a, in a 2017 case. You know, trials are mentioned twice in the Constitution. There's nothing, as I said earlier, about appeals. And so everything is designed to uphold the sanctity of the trial. So reversing a case based on what happened at trial is really hard. And the only way that you'll exonerate someone is if there is something new that happens, some new evidence that's found. But your point's really well taken. The definition of new is very convoluted. It's not just evidence that hasn't been presented in court before. It's newly discovered evidence that could not have been discovered with due diligence beforehand. So if your lawyer could have found it but didn't, it doesn't count as new. And conversely, it's sometimes hard to show that if your lawyer could have found it but didn't, that was ineffective assistance of counsel. It's sort of like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. In a lot of these cases, you can't prove it's newly discovered evidence, but you also can't prove that it was ineffective assistance for the lawyer not to find it originally. So it's very frustrating for those of us in the trenches. I mean, I'm now you know, in the ivory tower of the academy sort of screaming into the wilderness. But when I used to litigate these cases, it was extremely frustrating. So, Professor, what is the information asymmetry that prosecutors use to achieve plea deals? 
So that's a really important point. So we like to talk about how the criminal justice system is fair and how it's an even playing field. But basically, prosecutors have all the advantages. They work with the police. They get the police filed. They get all the evidence. Contrary to what a lot of people think, Prosecutors aren't required to disclose everything to the defense. In a lot of states, in fact, they're not even required to disclose uh, prosecution witness lists. So the one thing that they are required to disclose, it's called Brady material after a famous 1963 case. And it's evidence that would be favorable to the defendant and matters to guilt or innocence. But even then, it's really up to the prosecutors and their own individual consciences about whether they turn this stuff over, right? There's no way to know whether it's in the file unless they tell you. And a lot of times, frankly, they either decide it's not significant enough to turn over or they just just bury it. So what that means, Tina, this information asymmetry is that a defendant doesn't know about the strength of the case against him or her and doesn't know about evidence that could exculpate him or her that could actually free them. So they're basically pleading from a position of blindness. And you add to the fact that a prosecutor is going to offer you a good deal. They offer you three years up front when you're facing 10 years after trial and you don't know about the evidence against you. You don't know if you're going to be able to prove that you're innocent. You feel like you might take the deal. If you're risk averse, would you take three years when you're facing 10 and you don't know what's going to happen to you at trial? So there have been a lot of cases of innocent people pleading guilty. Uh, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, when I last looked, um, they had found 549 documented examples of that. And we think it's much more. It seems like the system has, you know, sort of inherent built-in biases against exonerating defendants and that defendants start off from a position of weakness, obviously, given the information um, asymmetry and given all the procedural issues involved with a successful exoneration, it seems to be a tremendous uphill battle and almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that a lot of the stakeholders are invested in having, you know, are, are, that's all against exoneration. Yes. It seems like a really difficult process for a defendant to overcome. I think that's very well put, Rich. I mean, when you think about it, you know, prosecutors obviously win because they have convictions on their record. Defense lawyers even win if they get a plea deal because they could at least rationalize it and say they they helped their client. You know, their client got three years instead of facing 10. Um, uh, judges get to churn through their cases. Sometimes judges advance based on their dispo rate, it's called their disposition rate. So they need to get through their dockets. And of course, you know, prisons benefit by filling beds and getting state money. So all of these stakeholders do benefit, except as you point out, Rich, the poor, forlorn criminal defendant who's innocent behind bars and screaming into the void to have someone listen. Um, and, and it is an uphill battle. And there are people doing good work on this, including a lot of, of folks in your in your hometown of Chicago. Right. Northwestern has the Center on Wrongful Convictions. Uh, there are other fantastic innocence advocates uh, right there in the Windy City. Again, that's distinguished law and criminal justice professor at Northeastern University, Daniel Medwed. Keep an eye out for his book, Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. Professor, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure.
You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on with the Legal Faceoff podcast, it is time for the Legal Grab Bag. Let's get to our two guests, starting with Elena Jurage, a 2L at Northern Illinois University. Elena, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And a returning guest to the Legal Faceoff podcast, Attorney Tony Thedford, partner of Thedford Garber Law. You can find out more about the firm at thedfordgarberlaw.com. Tony, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me again. Good to see you guys. All right, Tina, it's kind of been a while since we brought up this story, but the Central Park Karen that got fired from her job apparently was not fired unlawfully. Yeah, Joe. So this is a story that our listeners know we've been covering since 2020. When the incident with Amy Cooper, who was known as Central Park Karen, originally went down, everybody will remember that this was in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Um, Central Park Karen got a ton of backlash when she called the police on a black man named Christian Cooper, who was bird watching in New York Central Park. He asked her to put her unleashed dog on a leash. She refused and called 911 saying that he was threatening her and her dog. Christian Cooper, who's obviously not related to Amy Cooper, recorded the entire incident on his phone. She was charged with filing a false police report, was arraigned, and then the charges against her were ultimately dropped when she completed an educational course. She then decided a couple of months later to file suit against her former employer, where she worked as a portfolio manager. She had been fired immediately after the incident, after her employer did an internal review. The reason that they gave was that they don't tolerate racism of any kind. She then went ahead to sue, alleging that she was fired on the basis of race and sex. And she also claimed that her employer defamed her and caused her emotional distress. She also pointed to three male colleagues who were not fired, also following allegations of sexual harassment and insider training. And she said that she was being held to a double standard. Um, and she also claimed that her employer didn't really do enough due diligence after firing her, including um, reviewing the 911 call or records from prior community board meetings where it was a little more apparent, at least in her mind, that Christian Cooper had had other incidents with other dog owners in the past. So when the court decided to dismiss the lawsuit, they claimed that, you know, while racism was referenced, um, the way it was referenced was that her employer 
condemns racism and does not refer to race in its decision. Um, they also claim that, um, you know, the video was watched for purposes of seeing what went down. And that was enough for the employer to make an informed decision. And they also said that it's not an apples, apples, apples to apples comparison in terms of what happened with her and what happened with her colleagues. So, Rich, at the end of the day, maybe this is the end of the uh, Karen saga. I don't know, but can't say I'm surprised by this decision. Talk about like bad decision making. Obviously, her decision in Central Park that day was, you know, terrible judgment. Take the L and move on, for Christ's sake. I mean, to continue to have your name in the public domain as Central Park Karen uh, as a result of this lawsuit, good for her. That's all I got to say. You know, good for her for trying to continue to litigate, to claim, you know, racism and sexism and all this stuff. I mean, there are people out there every day who are dealing with actual racism, actual sexism, actual gender bias. And for her to waste the court's time with this nonsense um, is, is laughable. And, you know, thankfully, the court did the right thing and, you know, bounced her out of court. So I bid a fair adieu to uh, Central Park Karen forever. And uh, hopefully that's the end of it. But Tony, what, what are your thoughts on this story? You know, it's ironic that she filed under a uh, race claim as well as her uh, sex claim. So I just think it's ironic uh, because she came to the fore because of what was obviously her racism and using her her power or attempting to use her power, presumed power against a black man in a park who's birdwatching, who ironically now or, or interestingly now rather has his own show for birdwatching on some TV network now. So Mr. Cooper himself actually got a boost from this and all birdwatchers can rally behind him. But yeah, she... Um, Maybe it's the last that we hear of her. I can't imagine there's any other reason that she would, uh, you know, grace our screen unless she gets a job at Fox News. Yeah, the world is uh, the world is feeling terrible for the oppressed white Upper uh, East Side New York joggers uh, of the world. Elena, what are your thoughts of uh, Amy Cooper? Well, as a law student, I'm surprised that they didn't even stop this claim from from going into the courts in general. It seems like a frivolous claim. Even in the opinion, it says that um, it's an actionable as pure opinion, like the tweet that they that Franklin Templeton tweeted. Um, it was just a general mission statement of just not tolerating racism. So, yeah, to me, it's just surprising that it went through the court system in general. Yeah, I watched the video, Tina, of the uh, CEO of Franklin Templeton. Uh, she was interviewed about the incident, and I thought she explained herself pretty well. And uh, obviously, their decision had been vetted, right? You don't make that kind of decision. I mean, you could speak to this, representing a lot of high-profile clients. You don't make the decision to fire her in the wake of a incredibly uh, watched video uh, in a vacuum, right? That's the product of lots of people advising you of your uh, legal rights as a company. And I thought she did a great job in, in the way she communicated this. Yeah, I mean, they're a very sophisticated company and you don't, I mean, just as a general matter, you're sophisticated in that sort of thing, especially when it's something that garners this much attention. Bad for business. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a simple explanation for me in terms of why they got rid of her. So, yeah. yeah. Make better choices. Tina, let's move on to a couple of law schools that are going to be changing their names after their previous names had ties to controversial pasts. Yeah, Joe. So this is another story that we've been following pretty closely on LFO. 
um, law school name changes in the wake of controversy tied to their former namesake's involvement in slavery and other awful activities such as racism. Um, we previously covered the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law, which had removed the reference to John Marshall and its name back in May of 2021 because its namesake, former U.S. Supreme Court Just Chief Justice John Marshall, had bought, owned, and sold slaves. So now two more law schools have voted to change their names, including the University of Richmond, whose board of trustees voted to remove the name T.C. Williams from the name of its law school and is now named the University of Richmond School of Law. The T.C. Williams name dates back to 1890 and is attributed to an initial $25,000 memorial gift that his family had given the school that year to establish the law program and donations since then from some of his children and their successors. Williams owned slaves both as an individual and through the various tobacco businesses that he owned. The second law school that's changing its name effective January 1 is the University of California Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, which on January 1st is going to become the UC College of the Law in San Francisco or UC Law SF. That school's namesake and founder, Saranis Clinton Hastings, was a politician, also um, California's first chief justice, and he helped organize the massacre of hundreds of Native Americans. So I think we're just going to continue to see this happening. Um, I think it's the right decision. Um, and I think that there's a lot more of this to come, Rich, in the coming months and years. Interestingly, there was also objection to changing the name to San Francisco. Uh, that name actually also wasn't uh, appropriate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually have a connection to the story. My kids go to a school here in Chicago. Uh, called Harriet Tubman Elementary School. And uh, we led the uh, CPS, Chicago Public Schools, to change the name to Harriet Tubman, honoring heroic figure in American history, from the former name, which was named after a uh, white supremacist educator named Louis Agassiz. And for years and years, the name remained Agassiz. We tried to change it. We were met with a lot of resistance. And then finally, last year, we were the first Chicago school to change their name successfully. Um, so I get the story. I, I agree with it. You know, there are those on the other side who will inevitably argue, not just for school name change, when it comes to school name changes, Tony, but when it comes to removing statues and other artifacts, that they're all part of history. And that while you not, you should not agree with slavery, murder, um, imperialism, white supremacy, that those are all part of our nation's history and that they should still be on the names of schools uh, and, and the statutes should still be erected. What are your thoughts on that? I, I tell you, um, as Christina indicated a minute ago, how far does this go? Um, what about Thomas Jefferson? His name graces uh, many of our institutions in our country. And is he's a well-documented slave owner, as well as uh, having parented and fathered children with uh, women that he owned. Um, so again, I think it's up to the individual institution, Rich. I applaud you and your efforts at the school that your children attend. Um, but yeah, the bottom line is this, we change. 
And, you know, there was a time in this country where slavery was legal. It is not anymore. And we should, frankly, divest ourselves of those chains or recognition of that horrible period in our country's history if we're going to move forward. So I applaud it. I am interested, though, in where this goes. And once we get to more popular historical figures, uh, what the challenges will be there and will changes be made? It will be interesting to see. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and Elena, I think what differentiates, you know, statues in particular and school names to an extent also is that, you know, uh, yes, they're an important part. These people are an important part of history and they should be, you know, well known for lots of different reasons, uh, including to learn about what happened in our past and not forget about it. But, you know, to me, when you erect a statue to someone, you're glorifying them, right? I mean, you're literally looking up to them. Um, and in many of these cases, statues in particular, they're depicted in very heroic fashion. And by their very nature, they were only heroes because they were oppressing others, right? So, you know, again, I think that a lot of those should come down. I, 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 I agree with them, but there's definitely another you know, perspective on some of this. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's commendable. You know, as a law student, you're looking for a school who will, who's willing to go back in, in history and, and kind of admit, admit, you know, that this was not something that was commendable of their school to name it after, you know, slavery, racism in general. Um, so as a law student, I think it's, I think it's something that you see in a school and you, you kind of just want to go learn there, you know? Some Our next our institutions, I believe, you know, um, uh, I think Harvard, uh, I think maybe Yale, some of those institutions have not only uh, recognized that some of the benefactors, early benefactors were slaveholders or that they benefited at the university from slavery, but they've also made uh, a restitution in some way by offering, you know, some type of financial remuneration to people that they harm. So it's really more than just the name change. If there is a way to track sort of benefit from, uh, you know, slavery or slaveholding, I think it behooves institutions to try to make that right to the extent that they can. You can never get back that time. You can never, never get back those lives, those, those thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives that were ruined uh, and those children that were born into slavery. But uh, making those efforts, I think, as Elena just indicated, it will make a student like herself interested in going to a school that is flexible and willing to change. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good direction to go in. Our next story takes the old I got your nose trick to a whole new level. A highly ranked meat executive had a uh, pretty gory weekend earlier this month, Rich. Wow, that's a great setup. <laughs> I, I kind of want to throw up after that setup, to be honest. But um, <laughs> yeah, we all know the company. I, we all we all heard of Beyond Meat, I'm sure. They're a... Uh, a company that uh, offers a plant-based alternative to traditional beef. And uh, the COO got a little too into a football game. They were at a, a game uh, at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And uh, according to the police report, this individual, the CEO, his name is Doug Ramsey, was involved in an altercation, a road rage altercation with someone else. He jumped out, according to the police report, uh, punched through the back windshield of the other driver's car. Not sure if he was an Arkansas fan or not, this other guy. Uh, the driver told the police that he got out of his car. Ramsey pulled him close and began punching him. So far, so good. Not, not, a, not an unusual day in the SEC. Uh, and then what, what went dramatically wrong, as Joe mentioned when he stepped all over my uh, story, is that um, 
Ramsey bit the tip of the other driver's nose. He ripped the flesh, according to this report. He threatened to kill the other man until the uh, the two were separated. Um, of course, he was uh, dismissed by the company. I think uh, he was released, by the way, but uh, t- uh, Beyond Meat uh, has relieved him of duty. This is a longtime executive in the industry. I think he's a 30-year veteran of uh, the industry, formerly a Tyson. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, perhaps his defense, Tina, is that he was testing out a new product. You know, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of alternatives to beef, and maybe, as Joe referenced, he was just just trying trying out a different <laughs> alternative to meat. You know, yeah, that's like what maybe yeah, like human human nose tips. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that this story is ridiculous. I mean, I just think it's somebody who has just anger anger management problems is like the tip of the iceberg here. I think it's crazy. Oh, it's I see crazy. what you did. I see what it's the it's the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the nose, perhaps. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, as a as a proud graduate of the University of Alabama, I can tell you that we take our football seriously in the South and the SEC, as you already indicated, Rich. I will say, though, that he was doing a bad job at his job. The company had lost 73% of his valuation. Yeah. So I, they were looking for any excuse to get rid of him, biting the tip of a nose, getting them what they needed. Be interested if he files a lawsuit similar to our Central Park Karen, uh, uh, you know, saying he wasn't treated fairly, you know. Anti, anti, can, anti-cannibalism, perhaps right. anti-cannibalism. Or maybe a guy that eats meat who works for a non-meat company. Maybe that's what it was. So, who knows? I mean, maybe he was just damn hungry. You know how hard it is to eat beyond meat for their, for, I mean, the guy just wanted some actual meaty food for Christ's sake, you know, give the guy a break, Joe Brand. Stop being so judgmental. I don't know. No, that that's quite a stretch going from no meat to human flesh. That's, that's quite a leap. I, I just admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, Rich, some pretty serious law changes are coming to dog owners in Atlanta. And ironically, they're all bark and no bite. Wow. An instant <laughs> addition to the Joe Brand intro Hall of Fame right there. That's an, I thought you were going to I thought you were going to intro the nose story with something like, you know, just by the tip of their nose or something. But um, I digress. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Uh, don't have a loud dog in Atlanta, I guess, is the answer here. Um, who, who here are dog owners? Raise your hand if you've got a dog. I know, Elena, you've got a beautiful young thing, Tony. Yeah, so um, in Atlanta, effective uh, just last week, according to this new ordinance, uh, any nuisance animal, including a dog, can no longer make noise that these animals do. Uh, a dog can no, no longer bark for more than 20 minutes. Um, well, actually, it's now 10 minutes, right? And the new law is that it's 10 minutes. It used to be 20, and now it's 10. And if your dog barks for more than 10 minutes, then there are some fines involved, 150 for the first time, and then upwards from there. What was interesting to me, Tina, in this groundbreaking piece of legislation was that it wasn't limited to barking. I learned some different um, noises. So uh, you have to restrain your animal from barking, which we've talked about. Meowing, which we all understand to be a sound emanating from a cat. Whining. Who, I, what's what? Is that an animal sound or a human well, sound? I was I mean, going to say, I love, I mean, are we I bringing, the, are we bringing the, humans into this now too? Yeah, I love Probably the fact that I can call the cops on whiners. 
That's the best news of my life. You know how many whiners I have to deal with every day? If they whine for more than 10 minutes, I'm calling the Atlanta PD, wherever I am. Uh, crowing, crowing, like, are roosters a major problem these days? Like, how early are you getting up that you've got to call the cops on a rooster? And then uh, the catch-all, making other sounds common to the species. So it's a wide net, Christine, that uh, Atlanta has now dealt with. I mean, it's nuts. And frankly, I'm wondering, I mean, this is a slippery slope because when are we going to start, you know, I guess, you know, making it illegal for babies to cry more than 10 minutes without being considered. Add that. I consider that. I consider that crowing or whining for sure. Add that. Those damn babies. I, I mean, it's just—it's crazy. It, it, it's absolute craziness. And I want to know who the people are that have the time to sit there with a stopwatch and time how long the neighborhood, you know, dog is barking and cats are meowing and the neighborhood rooster is, you know, making his noise at the crack of dawn. I want to know who's got the time to sit there with a stopwatch because I'll put them to work. I don't know how you prove oh, yeah. it. I mean, are you going to record uh, the sound of an animal and turn that into law enforcement? You could have made up the sound. Wait, yes. You no, know, but it, it says you have to. Uh, it says one adult witness with a recorded video showing the alleged violation. So you got to hire a video crew, apparently. Well, no, everyone's got those ring cameras now. I mean, it probably makes it a lot easier. Really that committed. Elena, you're horrified by this story. You've got it. Let's show you. Is your dog available to make an appearance? And no, no. Let's hear the. <laughs> um, I mean, I would be fined every day. My dog barks at least for 15 minutes when I leave to go to work or school. So I, I don't know. This, this is just ridiculous. Elena, that's a, that's an admission. So make sure. Well, <laughs> take my legal advice and say nothing enough. more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how animals speak, right? So we're actually, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a first amendment issue, really. Yeah. We're recording speech here. First amendment. Mm -hmm. It's what the founders intended. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let's uh, move on to Shakira, who claims that her hips don't lie, but apparently her tax records do, Tina. Nice segue, Joe. So Shakira has had her share of tough breaks lately. Over the summer, she and soccer star, Gerard Piquet broke up after more than 11 years together and two children. And this past week, a Spanish judge said she now needs to gear up for a trial on charges of tax fraud and that she could face up to eight years in prison and a hefty fine if she's convicted. So Spanish prosecutors claim that she owes about $14 million in back taxes on income they claim she earned between 2012 and 2014. And the case really hinges on where she officially resided during that time period. Authorities say that she was essentially a Spain resident living with Piquet in Barcelona during that time, and that therefore she owes taxes, even if her official residence at the time was in the Bahamas. She, on the other hand, denies any wrongdoing and has rejected a deal with authorities um, that would have enabled her to avoid going to trial. Her PR firm claims she's already paid everything that she owes, as well as an additional $2.8 million in interest. Shakira's not the only one who's been under fire for not paying taxes in Spain. Spain's gone after some soccer stars, including Lionel Messi and, and Cristiano Ronaldo, 
for not paying all of their taxes, they were found guilty of tax evasion. But because um, of the determined prison sentences being under two years in length, they were they were able to avoid the prison time because they were first time offenders. Um, I'm not usually a betting woman, Rich, but I'd say Shakira is probably not going to end up going to jail for this. Uh, you know, Tina, maybe she shouldn't go. And Joe, get ready to play me out on this. Uh, maybe she shouldn't go to jail for this, but. Perhaps she should go to jail for that performance during the Super Bowl show, <laughs> Bran. I said the Super Bowl. Um, Elena, you, you're you a fan of uh, Shakira, I think. Um, the, by the way, the biggest takeaway from the story that I, I had, Tina, was uh, her full name. Shakira Isabel Mubarak or Pole. You said that, right? I just said Shakira because I'm smarter than, yeah. than that to go through her Everyone I mean, knows. how do you get, but I mean, like I would, I would drop my, my last three names, but you know, she's in the rarefied air of being able to go with the one name. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, she dropped it from that four names to the one. Well, which because is how, many but, Shakira, um, how many Shakiras do you know? I mean, and if you were to meet a Shakira, you'd be like, Oh, like the real Shakira, Shakira. Hey, in Barcelona, that's like Jane. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I don't know. I mean, Spain is hitting all of their biggest stars with these huge tax bills and threatening them with jail. I mean, the uh, Ronaldo as well as Messi both left uh, Barcelona, Spain and Real Madrid based on their tax issues and play for other countries now. So I don't know. No Shakira music in Spain. I don't know. It could be a consequence to the entire country for giving this lady a hard time. It seems like, Elena, good advice for a celebrity is like, oh, maybe overpay, try to overpay your taxes. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe give the government a little more than uh, you should. That way they won't come after you because these people are highly attractive to federal prosecutors, no matter what country you're in, it seems like. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the issue that I have, maybe this is just because I'm a law student, but why are we suing Shakira when we all know that Shakira is not sitting down doing her taxes every year? Why aren't we going, <laughs> why aren't we going after the people who are doing her taxes is my issue. To me, Shakira is perfect. <laughs> I thought, I thought you were going to say she doesn't, she's not sitting down because she's literally dancing all the time. Yeah, and yeah, she, she has no time to, she's doing her taxes while dancing. Therefore it's understandable that she would miss a comma here or there. No. Those hips don't lie. Let's face it. Elena, I don't know. That's that could be the Trump defense too to his tax issues in New York. So again, <laughs> well, I'm a lawyer. It's good for Shakira. It's, if it's good for Trump, it's good for Shakira. <laughs> I feel like Trump's uh, Shakira. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Elena, wrong message as a budding lawyer. The the the, me- the, the takeaway should be let's blame lawyers. <laughs> Blame the clients. That's something you'll know. You'll know. Tony knows that all, all too well. Blame the clients first. Blame the client first. Let's yeah. move on to a different musical genre. And Rich, law disputes are continuing for the band Journey. Apparently, you can't have it any way you want it. <laughs> Joe again. Foiled again, Joe. Don't worry. I got some backups. I, I, I saw that one coming. And I have some good backups ready, Joe, for that one. But um, right, just, just don't stop believing in yourself. I, I know you. No, stop it, Joe! Stop it! Who shows this anyway, Joe? You've been studying these for days. These Mad Lib. <laughs> Rich, 
among oh other many God. things, he's that, that's his value add is the segues. Oh so, um, Tina, this has been going on forever. I mean, for years. It's been going yeah. on since behind the music, like whatever that was, 25 years ago when Steve Perry was whining about being in Journey and getting kicked out of Journey. I mean, years. I mean, this. Yeah, this is your wheelhouse, so you got to weigh in. But I mean, what struck me, I took a deep dive into this story. I told you I was up at about 2.30 preparing for our show today. So I had a lot of time to really study the long, intricate litigation between the Journey members. And, you know, this one happens to be a particularly complicated case because there's multiple owners, multiple companies, all of whom are claiming that they have some ownership interest in the trademark. Uh, there's companies starting stopping new companies coming in everyone's trying to chase this brand right and it's complicated by it's incredibly complicated by the fact that members of the band have also left and been fired right and uh there's some there's a lot of discussion about you know even though there might be an agreement whether the individual band members contributions to the brand and to the music warrant their inclusion it's all very confusing. At the end of the day, Tina, I think a good rule of thumb that comes out of this case is obviously get everything in an airtight agreement. Hire the best lawyers if you've got a valuable brand and get that in writing. And even when it's in writing, people will still sue and claim that there's other factors to look at. So maybe explain to our listeners and viewers very quickly. Oh, yeah. This is, is a there, very is, conversation. <laughs> does... does well, does the contract always rule the day or will the court sometimes look at the factors that some of the parties are alleging here that, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what the agreement says. You did not contribute equally. Therefore, you shouldn't partake in the bounty of this brand. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, as a trademark attorney and a brand lawyer and dealing with things like ownership, the best thing a band can do is to have, is to reach a decision, have an agreement that talks about who owns what, especially if the band breaks up or if members leave. Because at the end of the day, courts are going to look primarily first and foremost at those agreements. And it gets more complicated if there's a pattern of conduct that doesn't align with the agreement, or if there's certain things that happen after the agreement is entered into that seem to override what the intent of the parties were and whatnot. But that's why you need an ironclad agreement, because I can tell you just as an initial matter, joint ownership of IP, especially things like a trademark, is a pain in the neck. And that's why you see more often than not that these very sophisticated, um, you know, bands, which more often than not are not very sophisticated, but that's why you see things like holding companies and whatnot, because having a joint ownership of a trademark is very difficult because when you end up not getting along with your bandmates, when you jointly own something, there are certain permissions you need from everybody and you're never going to get it. And so that's why you need to have an agreement in place and you need to have like a corporate entity owning it and having it be very clear what happens upon dissolution of the band, band members leaving, and that that agreement takes into consideration what the, what the contributions are of the band members when it's being entered into. And it contemplates, are there payments, are there royalties? You know, that sort of stuff should be contemplated even after things blow up. I think the tragedy... And Tony, these... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Chris, go ahead, man. No, I was saying, I think the tragedy... No, no, I mean... I... That as a child of the 80s, um, 
I loved her. We all grew up with them. And, and certainly as a, you know, we'll never see them together again. We'll never see Steve Perry, one of the greatest voices ever, to be honest. We'll never hear him sing Lee for Journey again. And that's sad for us as fans. But I get it. And, and Christina, thank you for breaking that down. <laughs> I was taking notes. <laughs> I was taking notes, too. Thanks for that. <laughs> Well, and why, Elena, why it's why they're still fighting all these years later is because especially these days when, you know, there's no such thing as buying music anymore and there's no such thing as, you know, selling ads on the radio for music, the brand is really important. And the ability to, you know, exploit that brand through merchandise is incredibly important. And what they're talking about here is a lot of this is merchandise sales. So that's why it's really relevant even for a band that's been around for, you know, about 50 years or so. Well, there's also a lot of emotion here, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we saw the behind the music, Rich, back in 1997 or whenever it was when Steve Perry was interviewed about why he wasn't with Journey anymore. And it's very clear that, you know, that was 25 years you know, ago and 25 years later, here we are. And it's the same refrain, the same bad blood and the same bickering and the same fighting. All right. Well, Joe, you ready? I've got some alternatives for you. You ready? Sure. Any way you file it, any way you file it, that, um, don't don't stop litigating. Uh, who's suing now? <laughs> that one. That's a good one. Uh, when the lights go down in the courtroom, <laughs> um, uh, I'll litigate without you. And then finally, of course, separate ways. That, that, you don't have to change that one at all. <laughs> you don't have to change any words for that. No. <laughs> favorite favorite journey song quickly around the horn tony favorite journey song of all time don't stop believing I was 2005 in- white socks <gasps> i associate both of those together. Uh, there you go <laughs> yeah Elena, pick another one oh man you're on does, the spot even though i now wait, wait, wait. i gave you a few does does journey which one does journey sing the the wheel like some a song about wheel, the wheel, wheel, in, the wheel in the sky, sky. Yeah, wheels in the song. sky that's right very good good pick yeah you know so, well, you know what my favorite song is, Rich, because you all bought me a birthday present yes. a couple of years ago with the current lead singer of Journey singing um, Ask the Lonely. Oh, wow. Joe, cue the video. Play. Let's go back to that video from a couple of years ago with Ariel Pineda singing to Tina Martini. Yeah, that's a great one. Joe, your favorite Journey song of all time. Loving, Touch, and Squeezing. I'm surprised you didn't somehow incorporate that into your intro, Joe. No, I, wait, I, I, I had that somewhere. Wait, wait, wait. I had that love and touch and suing. How about love and one. touch and punching? Yeah. <laughs> mine is uh, mine is uh, stone and love. I love that one. Well, we're, okay. We're, Awkward yeah, we're transition. Very, we're all very cordial here on the Legal Face Off podcast because we get all our smack talk and name calling out of the way before we start recording. Uh, but a couple of lawyers, Rich, are in some hot water regarding their words and actions in the courtroom. Well, it's interesting because they're both uh, Illinois lawyers, which uh, doesn't bode well for our bar, my friends. But um, yeah, a couple of related stories. So one of the guys was in court and uh, got into a bit of a dispute with the judge. And the judge, as judges will do, told this attorney to basically stop talking. And the attorney, uh, an attorney by the name of uh, C. Tholander didn't want to stop. And uh, after the judge warned him 
said, I'm warning you, please have a seat. This guy said, I want to make a record. And then he used a term that in my research, Tina, harkens back to the 1600s. <laughs> he said, he said, Gadzooks. Of all the, of all the terrible things to say in court, this guy said Gadzooks. And the, the judge, of course, then uh, fined him $3,000. He took this all the way up. And uh, ultimately, appellate court confirmed the contempt judgment against him, recommended a reprimand. They rejected some other allegations. But Gadzooks? Not sure if that's bad or good. The judge I felt mean, otherwise. The, appell- so the appellate court felt otherwise. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, at the end of the day, there are certain key lessons that we can all draw from many of these stories that we talk about on the show. When a judge tells you to shut up, shut up. That's my big lesson for the day. Pretty good rule of thumb. Well, the other one is even more egregious. So there's another attorney, Tony, who, uh, man, I, again, I told you earlier, I read the, uh, the whole ARDC complaint. That is the governing body here in Illinois. I actually read the entire thing. It's good reading. Um, you know, listen, we all probably in the practice of law have our good days, bad days. We all say things that we probably wish we could take back, but not to this extent. I have not seen uh, an email or a series of emails this egregious. I mean, he was uh, basically had his license taken away from him for three years. Uh, that, is, that is pretty egregious. You don't see that very often. You right. especially don't see it, Tony, for language you know in fact the court the ardc when they made the recommendation they said there's a little bit of precedence but not a whole lot um but if you look at the emails i mean you know just a sampling is calling uh a lawyer at a big law firm by the way like you know it's one thing to say it's a small uh, attorney at a small firm if you're taking on a big firm a lot of resources you're going to get a reaction uh he called the lawyer a scum idiot despicable and unfit to practice law he called one lawyer schmucks when his name was Schmeltz. He said it would bring the full weight of justice down on you. Uh, the the uh, ARDC said that this was abusive and aggressive language. It was not free speech, as he said. He also failed to provide any evidence in mitigation. This stuff you don't see very often, but it is a good cautionary tale for everyone, all of us, including our friend Elena, who is now just learning how to become a lawyer. Don't do this stuff. Don't do any of it. You know, um, oftentimes a law degree for some people gives them cover just to be jerks and be mean and horrible. And this second guy sounds like he falls in that category. Um, I'm sorry you had to read that entire complaint because that's 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 horrible. Uh, I will say as to the first case, to the Gadzooks, I am on that guy's side. I know this judge, <laughs> Judge Demacopoulos. I've known her. I knew her when she was a prosecutor. Oh, wait a second. Hold, yeah. hold everything here. Let's make sure <laughs> that everyone listening understands that the opinions of our guests are those of them alone. <laughs> no, let me say this. I like her. I want to be very clear. I'm just saying I know she doesn't play. So uh, when I was reading the transcript of that and I knew after you didn't stop talking the second time, this is not good. So uh, you should have read the room on that one. Uh, but it, that behavior is not egregious compared to guy number two. And um, I'm glad he got dinged for three years. We have to have rules in our profession at the end of the day. And, you know, we are all stuck and we have to follow those rules. And, and again, there are consequences and he has them. So I, I don't have any sympathy for guy number two. <laughs> Not at all. Well, By the way, the final, ca- the final cap. I was going to say, he uh, tried to say he was the plaintiff and not the lawyer here. 
as uh, you know, as if in somehow yeah. somebody that's going to make it better. It's like, dude, you are a lawyer as part of your profession. You have a duty to comport yourself in a way that's appropriate with, you know, the fact that we're licensed and we are a profession where the way we behave is pretty important. Well, he also pulled the, uh, or you can't suspend me because I'm retired move. You know, <laughs> I'm already retired. So I'm going to, going to teach you, but Elena, bring us home with this. I mean, hopefully you're learning in the great law school that you're at, that, uh, there's a certain way to comport yourself as a professional and as a lawyer. And you also have ethical duties to do so. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm in professional responsibility right now with Judge Shore, and he, you know, we were having a discussion about the general public's perception of attorneys, and we want to we want to look better to the general public. And right now, I, you know, I think I think with the media, you know, there's shows out there. I love Better Call Saul, but you know, <laughs> there's a perception of us, and I think it, it it's good that we have. Like Tony said, the lines drawn in the sand where, you know, there's good behavior and bad behavior. And luckily, we have podcasts like the Legal Face-Off podcast to show what lawyers are really like and how clever and, and witty they all are with their musically inclined ability to turn songs into segues and you know, <laughs> many talents rather than just the legal world. Right, Rich? Get Zooks. I say get Zooks to that. But, you know, this is a... This is a Bidenism. This is like, uh, what's Biden's favorite one? Uh, Dagnaviter. He's got a couple. He's got a couple of Gedzook, Gedzooks in his repertoire. 1930s uh, uh, yeah. portfolio, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to bring back Gedzooks. By the way, Gedzooks was also the name of a, uh, a retailer in like the 90s. It was a, a chain of uh, apparel stores that got bought up by Forever 21. So... Well, I challenge you, you to get this into a conversation uh, over the next few days and see where we can end up there. <laughs> I'll work it in. There you go. Just not with the judge. No. That's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Face Off podcast. Big thanks to our two guests today, Tony, attorney Tony Thedford and Elena Drage. Another big thanks to our guests earlier on in the show, Morgan Stogsdill, Joel Schwartz, and Professor Daniel Medwed. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. Please give us five stars. It helps us out a lot. Big thanks to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. For Tina Martini and Rich Lankoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lankoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.